If his life was taken and put in a book, and no, the book of Abraham that the Mormons have is not a real book, it is, it is fictional, then we would see that at chapter 21, we have come to a bookend, a watershed moment, a climax. Last week we saw the birth of the son of promise, Isaac. A son who had been promised for a quarter of a century. Mind you, that is, just to give you an idea, uh, longer than I've been on this earth. So <laughs> it is, that's a, quite a bit of time of promising and he finally received that promise. Next week we shall see that same son of promise being offered up as a sacrifice by Abraham unto the Lord. These two moments, the beginning of chapter 21 and 22, are very important moments for us, both in the narrative in Genesis, but also as us as believers. Obviously, we can see the echoes, the shadow of Christ in them. A miraculous birth. And the sacrifice and atonement made for us. And this week, we get to see an exciting tale of two men having a dispute over real estate. Lord be with us. Now this passage, if you were anything like me, if you were simply reading through the text, it's typically what I would call a skim passage. We very quickly kind of skim through it. It seems very awkward to be placed right in the middle between uh, this, this large moment of this son of promise being born and this coming sacrifice. And yet I should warn us that we shouldn't simply just skim past it very quickly. Although that is typically our uh, first response to something like this. It seems awkward. It seems out of place. And so our question that we have to ask is, why is it here? Why has verses 22 through 34 been inserted into chapter 21 of the book of Genesis? Is it simply uh, panning out and filling up and being some fluff so that Moses, the author of Genesis, could say he wrote a longer piece than he did? Well, let us see about answering that question this morning by looking at this passage in three different situations, three different positions. Firstly, the blessing of peace. Secondly, the blessing of the land. And finally, the blessing of the promise. Firstly, the blessing of peace. Now we pick up in verse 22 with a familiar name that we might remember if you were here a few weeks ago. Abimelech, pagan king of Gerar, has returned to us in our narrative. You astute Bible scholars will remember that last time we saw Abimelech, he was in some hot water, uh, thanks to our man Abraham, for taking Sarah from Abraham <laughs> and being warned by God that if he just touches her, he would die. And so Abraham 
is approached again by Abimelech, and Abimelech rebukes Abraham, returns Sarah to him, as well as with sheep, oxen, and servants. You would think Abimelech would stay far away from this ruffian that is Abraham, this man who caused him so much pain and issue and, well, to be quite frankly, just not, it was not a good experience all around. That would be one of our first responses, at least I'm sure it would be mine if I have a bad experience with someone to simply avoid them, stay far away from them as much as possible. And yet we, will see, we see here that is not what Abimelech does. Verse 22, Now it came about at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity. But according to the kindness that I've shown to you, you shall show to me and to the land in which you have sojourned. And so Abimelech has come to Abraham with a general even this time around, seeking peace with his patriarch. One commentary put it very bluntly, however, that there's two things that Abimelech knows about Abraham. One, that God is with him. Probably the most important thing. And secondly, he's not altogether a trustworthy man. And yet therein lies the reason why Abimelech has come to Abraham here in chapter 21. For it is not necessarily Abraham that Abimelech is seeking peace with. Well, at least not Abraham alone. The first thing Abimelech says to Abraham is God is with you in all that you do. And then he says to swear to him by God that he will not deal deceitfully with him or his children or his children's children and so on. So it goes. Because Abimelech realizes that it is not Abraham that he should necessarily be concerned for. Although Abraham has grown in stature and in fame at this point in the text. No, he is terrified of the God whom came to him, speaking of Abimelech, in chapter 20, who threatened him that even so much if he touches Sarah, he will die. And so he has come. In a sense, to make peace with Abraham and ultimately with God. And I wonder, Abimelech realizes it is, it is obvious to him beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is with Abraham. With a shadow of a doubt. It's the first thing he says. And so I cannot help but wonder if the same could be said of us today. When we're put under the microscope of the world, is the first thing they think God is with them? Or is it simply that well, that person is kind of a jerk or kind of a prideful man or woman or fill in the blank? 
It is important to realize, beloved, that it is God, again, who is the strength that Abimelech is seeking to make peace with. He realizes that Abraham could not have been where he is without him, without the Lord. And so he comes. He comes seeking peace. And mark how Abraham responds. Abraham said in verse 24, I swear it. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. He swears to not deal deceitfully. But then proceeds to very boldly, might I add, rebuke the very king that back in chapter 20 he cowered before. He was terrified of. He believed would kill him. And so he lies and he seeks to scheme his way out of that situation by telling him that Sarah is a sister. And when he is called out by Abimelech, he then tries to blame shift, saying, well, (laughs) she is my sister. And besides, this is a godless nation. You would have killed me anyway. And showing an undue care for his safety, despite the fact that at at that point, Abraham had been with the Lord for many, many years. And this is genuinely a, a grave situation that Abraham is bringing up to Abimelech, this well of water being seized. For I must remind you that this is in the middle of the desert. Water is scarce. It is not something that is readily available. And so this act of seizing, this act of aggression that Abraham is presenting to Abimelech is in a sense an act of aggression, an act of war. It is not too soon to say it is akin to Russia crossing the border of Ukraine. It is by all accounts quite a good reason to complain and to rebuke And of course, Abimelech responds, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I did not hear of it till today. Which, by the way, I do not recommend as a response to anyone that you're having an issue with that they come to you. Do not ever say, well, I don't know. He, you know he's covered his bases. It's not a good idea to say those things. And we could, in our own mind as readers, pursue and possibly consider, maybe he's lying. These are his servants after all. Perhaps he did know about this. And if he didn't know about this, this seizing of the well, well then certainly Abimelech is not a very good king because his servants are acting like fools. Yet mark how Abraham responds to his plea of ignorance and innocence. Abraham takes sheep and oxen and gives them to Abimelech. And the two of them make a covenant. He simply brings forth sheep and oxen and makes peace. And so we can straight from this a few things. Firstly, that the believers should strive to make peace whenever possible. But the offer of peace has been extended to Abraham. Abimelech desires it. 
And so taking the opportunity, Abraham has decided that, yes, we will have peace, but I should tell you that I have an issue with you. Is that our response typically to adversity? To conflict? When we face someone who comes to us with an issue either about our own, something we have done or something they have seen in us, is our first response to extend an olive branch or to brandish a sword. The Lord Jesus in Matthew's Gospel at the, in the Beatitudes said, Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. In Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet talks about how, how lovely are the feet of those who bring good news, who bring peace. And this peace that we are seeing exemplified in Abraham that he is seeking is not some cowardly peace. Because we could say in chapter 20 that he received peace to an extent, but it was a cowardly peace. It was one that was him lying and deceiving and simply being dishonest. And that's not how we are to carry ourselves. It is unbecoming of believers to simply be dishonest in our search for peace. And so here in chapter 21, we see Abraham, in a sense, if, you, if that was him being cowardly in chapter 20, this is him being bold in chapter 21. He's standing on truth. He's saying, yes, I will make peace with you. However, let it be known that you have wounded me. Nevertheless, let us embark and make a covenant with each other that I will not deal deceitfully with you or your children. And there will be peace between our parties. And this peace was advantageous for both of them. Abimelech could rest easy knowing that Abraham and the God who strengthens him are to some extent a companion. They would not be aggressors towards him. And never again will Abimelech have to worry about some man telling him about how his sister is his wife and the confusion that brought. And Abraham gets to have legal right over the well that he had dug. It's been, it is being put in stone, so to speak, that that is his well. And so that brings us to the second portion of our passage this morning. The blessing of the land. Perhaps one of my favorite things to see when I'm reading scripture is when there are simple questions being asked and answers are being directly given right after them. It makes my job easy. I don't have to think very hard about what's going on here. I think of when the apostles came to Jesus after the Olivet Discourse and asked him, all the, you know, Lord, when is the end of the age and when will these things happen and so on and so forth. And Jesus answers him. You don't have to be in fret or concern yourself with what the answer is. 
And yet sometimes this uh, simple answer and question that we see in the text can be a double-edged sword because although it is good to see the answer very plainly given to us, we might make the mistake of again skimming past it and thinking that it's, well, it's simply, well, that's, the, that's, that's all it is. It's just what the answer has been given. So let's break down this next portion of our text as an example. In verse 28, Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Bimelech said to Abraham, What do these seven ewe lambs mean which you have set by themselves? He said, You shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba because there the two of them took an oath. And so we see in, in verse 28 that Abraham set seven ewe, which for your city folk means female, lambs aside. And Bimelech in verse 29 notices this and questions him. What on earth are you doing with those seven lambs that you have put aside? Verse 30, Abraham answers him. Well, there are to be witnesses and this well being mine. And finally in verse 31, the conclusion, the well is named Beersheba. Simple enough. Now Beersheba is actually a very important locale in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. Its name can be translated as either the well of the oath or the well of the seven, depending on what your translation you're using and uh, what your little notes will say if you have a, a reference Bible. We shall see it again in chapter 26 of Genesis when Isaac returns to this part of, the, of this land and strangely enough has another encounter with Abimelech and Phicol and again makes another covenant of peace with him. It is also considered to be the southernest most point of the promised land. In the Old Testament you may see sometimes it's said uh, if there's decrees being put out or what have you that the whole, the whole promised land can be encompassed from Dan to Beersheba. And you might say, well, that's very well and good. But I did not come to have a word study or what have you. But my Bible notates that and I can see in the translation notes and it's, it's quite clear. I can skim to my heart's extent. And again, that's very good, but it does not answer the question, why is it there? Why is Beersheba being named here out of all the places that could be chosen in the Scriptures? Well, it's because this covenant and its signing of the name of this well effectually gave Abraham a tiny little sliver of the peace of the promised land. It's his land. He owns it. It's his well. It's a partial fulfilled promise. And we know this to be true because what does Abraham do as soon as this exchange ends? Well, he plants a tree and worships the Lord. And yet this time when he calls upon the name of the Lord, he adds a new descriptor. He says, is the Lord the everlasting God? 
And so moving right along, that brings us to the third point. It is the blessing of the promise. There's a Chinese proverb that says that the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. And the second best time is right now. As far as we've seen, Abraham has never uh, dabbled in arboriculture of tree planting uh, in the text in Genesis. For it will be many years before that tree is grown to a point where he can actually enjoy it, be able to sit under it, under the shade. For he was a nomad. He lived a nomadic life, moving to and fro. He never, again, as Hebrews t- taught us, he never truly he lived in tents. And yet now, he has land. You can't t- necessarily plant a tree on your neighbor's lawn and be able to say, well, that's my tree. Because they'll say, no, I pay the property taxes. That is most certainly not your tree. And so this planting of a tamarisk tree is more than just Abraham getting a green thumb. It's more than him just getting an itch to plant something and watch it grow. Because we know if we sit down and watch, uh, I believe it was someone said, that if you watch grass grow, it will never grow. It takes time. And so although Abraham would not be able to enjoy the blessing of this tree, his offspring would. His offspring will be able to enjoy this tamarisk tree that has been planted near the well of Beersheba, which is the southernest most point, that will be the southernest most point, of Israel, the promised land. Land that Abraham was promised would be given to his descendants innumerable. And so Abraham is recognizing this fact, this, this, this act that he, of, of this covenant with Abimelech. It is a moment where his eyes have been brought back to the Lord and he calls upon him in thankfulness for his, the Lord's faithfulness. A little earlier this morning, I stated that chapter 21, the whole, the whole chapter, is essentially a bookend or a, a watershed moment in the book of Abraham's life. Which again, doesn't, moments don't have that. That's false. We have seen the promised son born, Isaac. We have seen Ishmael, although not of the promise, Yet still the Lord blesses him and promises Abraham that he will be a father of princes and kings. And he will look after him. We saw at the very beginning of this text with Abimelech that Abraham's name is so great that kings are coming to him seeking peace. And now we are seeing a little plot of land that he can call his own and where he will stay for a bit of time you see the promises being fulfilled in this passage all throughout it the entire chapter for 25 years Abraham was ago Abraham was called forth from his homeland he was told to go into a land that the Lord will show him 
And we've seen throughout the book of Genesis up to this point, the Lord making promise after promise after promise with Abraham and with Sarah, his wife. And now in one chapter, one after another, we're being shown that those promises, although partial, although not fully, right? Isaac can be numbered. He is one man. He's not innumerable. And no, uh, the well around Beersheba and Beersheba is, is not as far as his eye can see from the north to the south, the east to the west. And yet still, it is a proof that the Lord is faithful to keep His promises. Even though they don't look quite like we wish them to. Returning to Hebrews for a moment. I can flip. In verse 13 of Chapter 11, it says that all these, meaning Abraham, Sarah, even Isaac and Jacob, died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For those things in verse 14, who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country not of their own, not of their own. If you jump down to verse 37 in that same chapter of Hebrews, we see that all these people in this chapter, all the, the giants of the faith that we like to use in our topical sermons to say, be like Abraham, be like Moses. They were stoned, they were sawn into. They were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God has promised, provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. And so if we were to use the New Testament to look back into the Old Testament for a moment, even though we could say with a critical eye, well, not exactly. This son that Isaac, the son of Isaac, this is not quite innumerable. And you would be correct. Because Abraham didn't necessarily see the fulfillments of those promises. And so the question must be asked then. What were the, what, what, where's the fulfillment? Where is, where is this? If God is faithful, why has he not fulfilled those promises? Beloved, obviously we know the answer. He has fulfilled them. In 2 Corinthians it says that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who was born of a miraculous birth of a woman who should not have been able to carry him. His name is greater than even Abraham's. Although Abraham's name has been made great because of his connection with Christ. And 
And the land that he has is not just a plot in Beersheba. Not even just the confines of Israel. And not even just the whole world. It's the whole universe. It's his land. Where us, the descendants of the promise, the sons of the promise, sons of God, are able to enjoy and be a part of this beautiful redemptive history. And so why on earth are we talking about a well dispute? Why aren't we talking more about sacrifices and miraculous births and all these wonderful things? Well, we have, first of all. And we have to talk about the well of this, this dispute because it's in the text. But it's because these texts, specifically the passage we have seen this morning, is showing us that even Abraham realizes that the promises are not fully fulfilled. And so he plants a tree. And yet still he blesses the name of God, the everlasting God. Because he knows He trusts. He has faith. This is not the same Abraham who in chapter 20 was terrified for his life. This is an Abraham who we will see in chapter 22 without hesitation will take his son up to the mountain. Without a doubt in his mind. Why is that? Is the the application here to just be like Abraham? No. Well, yes, but no. It's to see how did Abraham get to this point. It wasn't because he followed the rules. It wasn't because he was a great guy who just had it all together. No, it was because he trusted and put faith in the everlasting God that had called him out of his homeland. And we've seen throughout this book of Abraham's life him fail. We see him Blumbering about in Egypt, doing the exact same thing that he does with Abimelech. We see him listening to the voice of Sarah, which sidebar this passage also redeems. And well, back in the beginning of chapter 21, when Abraham listens to the voice of Sarah again. We've seen him in the darkest moments We have seen him in his best moments. But I think it is important to realize that his best moments are only his best moments because those are the moments where the Lord had strengthened him and he was trusting him. When he goes out to have war, if we remember back months ago to the War of the Kings, Melchizedek comes to him and what does he say? He praises the Lord. He gives glory to the Lord for the victory. Not Abraham. Although Abraham certainly did play a part in that victory. And so brothers and sisters, the point of this text of the well being disputed over is to show us as we have been seeing throughout the book of Genesis that God is the protagonist. Abraham is not the hero of the story. 
The only reason Abimelech has come back is because he knows God is with him. And so might we, in this day, that we pray for the same thing. Let's not take a moral lesson from this. Although there are moral lessons to be taken. But for Christ gives us greater peace than a treaty between two men can give. And so this morning, if you know, do not know this miraculous son, this blessing, this promised one, consider what you have heard this morning. Consider what the words of God are saying. For although Abraham looked forward to the day when the fulfillment of the promise would come, it has come. His name is Jesus Christ, son of Joseph and Mary. And we, because of that, because he has come, are now welcomed in as sons of God, peacemakers. Not waging war against flesh and blood, but waging war against powers, principalities, teachings and Anything else you can throw in there? Put your hands with me. Lord, may it be said that your word was preached this morning. Might it be said that Christ was glorified? For if it was not for Christ, we would not be here. We could not sing and praise you for fulfilling the promises that you promised. You promised Abraham and you promised us. May we not, as believers, as students of the word, as children of God, look past and look quickly through these small things that our minds believe are awkward or not really fitting what we want to read about in the scriptures. But Lord, may we see that every single pen, every single line of text in this scripture is good for us because it shows us Christ if you follow that line. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and setting us free. In your name we pray. Amen.